Hey everybody, it's playoff time. It's the wild card round here in Houston. We are going to be facing the Indianapolis Colts. I say we because I played for the Texans. I don't abide by that notion that broadcasters shouldn't say we when they're talking about the team. Screw that. That's great if you consider yourself a journalist. I'm no journalist, my friends. So I'm very excited to be watching some playoff football in Houston tomorrow, as I know a lot of you are excited just to be watching your team or a team you care about, uh, maybe a team that you hate in the playoffs if your favorite team is not in the playoffs, which leads us to the coaching carousel. Sean Pendergast and I will get into the coaching carousel. Michael Lombardi previews a bunch of the games from this weekend. So check it out. We got Sean Pendergast for about 34 minutes. If you want to fast forward to Michael Lombardi, it starts around 34, 35 minutes or so. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Some news on the podcast. We will be interviewing various people from around the AAF, the Alliance of American Football, coming up towards the end of this month. Also, I'm going to be traveling to the Super Bowl, so we'll probably have a bunch of really cool interviews from the Super Bowl itself. Ross Tucker and I said we'd get back together for a a longer in-person visit this time. Really excited for this weekend. Very excited for all of you for what's shaping up to be a pretty damn good week of four football games in the wild card. Deceptively Fast Podcast. Here we go. Welcome to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. We took a hiatus last week, uh, Sean, because I was moving. I was actually moving into your neighborhood in Pearland, Texas. Yeah. Not in your neighborhood, but you're saying... I know exactly where you're moving. We drive right past it to go to either the sushi restaurant over by where you live, uh-huh. Little Tokyo, or to go to 24-Hour Fitness, or to go to the Kalachi Factory. Oh, okay. Uh, most often, the first and the third options, <laughs> um, but occasionally we go to the gym over there. So I know exactly where you are. It's nice to have you in the neighborhood, man. I'm. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what a lot of people have told me. Yeah. Uh, probably increasing property values just in my presence. Um, <laughs> how'd you do? Uh, how'd you finish up on the season with your gambling? Uh, like even, like yeah. right at like forty nine point nine percent, something like that. Which so I'm very a, disappointed. I had a bad you, December. You had a you had a good thing going, and then uh, then you collapsed in December. You're like a, I did. I I went the first time you and I podcasted together doing best bets. I went six and zero, oh. and then I had a few good. I, I had like a few four and two weeks. You know, I was doing good, um, and then I hit a skid where I was three and three, three and three, three and three, three weeks in a row. So I just wasn't getting any traction. I was still over where you want to be. You want to be over fifty three percent, and you're you know if you're over fifty three percent in the grand scheme of things, you're you're winning. Um, but then I, the uh, last week was bad. Yeah. I was week 17 in the NFL is a tricky week, um, and my bowl handicapping could not have been worse. I had Purdue plus three and a half against Auburn. They lost 63 to 14, and I had Notre Dame plus 13 against Clemson, and the game was over at halftime. Well, so I, you, you know live what? and you learn. I'm going to give you a pass on December and especially on last week because I think a lot of those games that you wouldn't have bet with your own money, but you had to make a bunch of picks yeah. in bowl games. Bowl games and week 17s in the NFL are, I'm guessing, notoriously finicky in, in gambling. They the are. Gambling world bowl, the, week 17, yes, absolutely. Week 17, not the bowl games necessarily because coaching matters a lot, right? The coaching, motivation matters yeah, a lot. And that's yeah. where I really – and obviously the Notre Dame-Clemson game, both teams were motivated. I just – I misjudged Notre Dame's ability to just stay on the field against, uh, against Clemson. That's all they needed to do was stay on the field to cover a 13-point spread. So – I completely misjudged their chutzpah. They looked a lot more like the team that got run off the field by Alabama a few years ago. All the skeptics were correct about Notre Dame. I was wrong. Um, The Purdue one is mystifying to me against Auburn. I know Auburn's a more talented team. They're in the SEC. But Auburn was a top-10 team to begin the season, and they're playing in, I think think it was the Music City Bowl they were playing in in Nashville. One of those, you know, one of those December Bowls. And that was a team that, that, you know, a little bit of strife within the team. Anytime Auburn loses games, there's always strife. They want to fire the coach. But Purdue is a team that knocked off Ohio State a few weeks ago. Their coach, Jeff Brom, chose to stay at Purdue instead of go to his alma mater in Louisville. Mm-hmm. The spread was only three and a half. I, I just thought they would – I thought Purdue would play well enough to, to at least be in a dogfight with Auburn and, and have it be a field goal game. Um, but I was wrong. I mean, that was one of those ones that was painful to watch and follow on your phone. I wasn't watching the game, but I was – 
I had my thumbs off doing something that day during the holidays, and I'm looking, and every time I open my phone up, Auburn was scoring. It was 56 nothing at halftime. Yeah, it was disgusting. Every time I opened up my phone, they were scoring a touchdown. It was like the gods were mocking me. So, so week 17 in the NFL, uh, there was actually a, a good chunk of fun that obviously – we missed out on talking about beforehand. Right. The fun part afterwards is the coaching carousel. And I don't – for one, I'm going to say this at the beginning. I don't understand in this in this league where half the workforce on the player side gets fired every year, people always have to start off these things with, well, you never never want to see a coach get fired. There's people's livelihoods and everything. I hear coaches saying this all the time. Like, I don't I don't like that they talk about the hot seat. You mother effer, you just fired half your players. Yeah. And you're acting like, so I, I, I bask in this. Plus, the guys are still getting paid. Hugh Jackson's still getting paid, going to work for everywhere else. Let's run down this list of okay. rumors potential new coaches tell me whether you're whether you think this is bogus or legit let's start the, with the firings whether they're bogus no or the, the, the the potential hires the jobs okay gotcha. and and who you think might fit there uh and i'm just going to go down this article in cbs sports as okay. a way of organizing it browns obviously fired hugh jackson greg williams did a great job as the interim coach would you hire greg williams back uh no i wouldn't i you know my feelings on greg williams he did do a nice job there i feel like I feel like whoever they plugged in there was going to do a pretty good job because they were, A, going to take the shackles off of Baker Mayfield, and, B, I think there was just going to be a, a, a sugar rush of, of it being not Hugh Jackson. I think Greg Williams benefits from being not Hugh Jackson. The same way whichever quarterback was going to follow Brock Osweiler, i.e. Tom Savage, was going to benefit from not being Brock Osweiler. Now, Savage didn't really take advantage of it. He was gone by halftime of the first game. But I, that, that sort of – that sort of phenomenon right. where it's just not this other guy who we all got a great window into how incompetent he was. I mean, you and I talked about hard knocks for 30 minutes every week, breaking that whole thing down. So we remember, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't hire Greg Williams there. I think in part because, um, Baker Mayfield, young quarterback, uh, you know, I guess, you know, Freddie kitchens did a good job with him. I just feel like these teams that have young quarterbacks, Darnold Rosen Mayfield, I'd be more inclined to look at the offensive side of the ball for a head coach than I would the defensive side of the, the ball. The one little asterisk there would be that Freddie Kitchens has already been denied the opportunity to interview elsewhere as an offense coordinator. So the Browns have him under contract. It yeah, might be one of true. these situations where they hire a new head coach but say, hey, here's your offensive coordinator. Yeah. And that does work out. Yeah. You know, Mike Tomlin inherited Dick LeBeau, which is a different situation because Dick LeBeau is already a legend. Yeah. But I, I like that. I think the departure of Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley – did a whole lot for Baker Mayfield. I do too. Just having yeah, Haley have, too. I don't. Right. I don't know how much of it is Freddie Kitchens actually being good versus man Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson were doing a number on the whole situation. Yeah, just let him there. go do his thing. Would you hire Greg Williams? I would not. Yeah. I don't. I don't like him as a person. Yeah. You know, same. like I'm just thinking if I'm in the owner, like I want to hire a guy that isn't giving me a sales pitch about himself every time I walk in the door. Just yeah. uh, sit down and let's have a real conversation. I don't, you, I don't know if you know this, Seth. He got letters from 11 different yeah, teams know, about I know, jobs. I know. So it's, I'm sure, I'm sure letters. if he gets, uh, if he's not retained, I'm sure he'll have letters aplenty. Letters. People uh, send him a raven. The Broncos fire Vance Joseph. Uh, these are some of the candidates that have been suggested, and these are some interviews that are lined up. These are interviews lined up. Vic Fangio, the defensive coordinator of the Bears, Steelers offensive line coach Mike Munchak, who you'll recall was the uh, the head coach of the Titans for yep, a spell, yep. and New England's Brian Flores, the defensive coordinator, or at least <laughs> is he officially the defensive coordinator in 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 Indian? I think in he's New the England? top defensive guy, not named Belichick. Yeah, yeah. so um, I'm I'm calling bogus on all of those. Vic Fangio is an interesting one because he hasn't been talked about really ever seriously as a head coaching candidate yeah. despite success in San Francisco success with the Carolina Panthers before he came to the Houston Texans because yep. he doesn't really have that head coach demeanor but I wonder if now with guys like Frank Reich and some of these other coaches that have have not fit the classic mold of an NFL head coaching candidate yeah. maybe Fangio actually gets a chance this time you wonder too with with Elway though if because he's going to make this decision yeah if you got to look at what may felt have burned him this time around, like Vance Joseph was a terrible hire. He was abjectly horrible. He's getting fired after two seasons. I would tend to think that Elway, if he's looking at that and still feeling burned from that, he's going to go with someone who's got at least a little bit of head coaching experience, who's got a bit of a, a known commodity. You know, so Munchak, you know, who, you know, obviously wasn't great with the Titans or anything like that, but I know he's well-respected around the league. Um, 
that that I, I think whoever they're going to hire is probably going to be a guy who at least has has a little bit of experience. The the three jobs, and I know we're going to go through these these other ones. I tend to think like I I rank, we won't get to all of them. So go well, ahead, but yeah. I rank these eight jobs that are open on the Houston Press. I think Cleveland is far and away the best gig for a new head coach with all the draft stuff, with all the cap space, with Baker Mayfield on a rookie deal. Um, these these jobs where I feel like they're going to be in QB limbo here, which is Denver to me. I think Miami's not long for Tannehill, mm-hmm. and I think Cincinnati's going to extricate themselves from Andy Dalton finally with Marvin Lewis gone, and they don't have any dead money on him. They can cut him. Um, those are tough jobs because you're you're yeah they're all picking in the top thirteen. I think they pick nine, eleventh, and thirteen. This is not a great draft for quarterbacks. Exactly. You know, so so are you going to be this head coach that goes there and and signs Joe Flacco, who's basically just a you know a version of what you just had, but he's got a Super Bowl ring from seven years ago or whatever. And, it and was. I don't think that coaches have the luxury of saying, well. That quarterback's not out there this year, but over the course of the first few years, we'll figure it out, especially if you go to Denver because this is the place that's going to be firing a guy in very short order after hiring him. They, so it's a it's a now or never, like you've got to get it done soon. They fired Vance Joseph in part because this is the first time they've had – this is incredible. Back-to-back. Back, uh, back-to-back losing season since like the early 70s. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and I've heard some people, I, I can't remember who I was listening to the other day, that said, well, yeah, but they had John Elway. Sure, they had Elway, but then they had Plummer, then they had... Um, uh, oh, dude, they had Brian Greasy for a year. Yeah, like it's not, it wasn't they just John Cutler Elway. They had Jay Cutler for a few right. years. They had Jay Cutler for his first three years in the league. They had Tim Tebow. They had Tim Tebow for a season. <laughs> and won a playoff game. Trevor Simeon, Brock Osweiler. Well, they had Peyton Manning with a noodle arm. It's an incredible franchise, or yeah. it had been, until whatever the hell it is right now. Yeah, so I, I that's so you bring up Denver. So I'm, I'm throwing Cincinnati and Miami sort of in the same talking point about Denver. I'm not, I'm not sure how great those three jobs are right now because – there, it's not like you're picking first or third in last year's draft like Cleveland and New York were, yeah. both of which are open jobs right now, by the way. But, but there, I mean, you're picking nine. You're picking somewhere around the top ten. And, you're, and this is a, a quarterback class where if you're, even if you're picking there, you're reaching a little bit. I don't know who the best quarterback is. Drew Locke maybe? So it's that's going to be tough sledding in those jobs, I think. The Green Bay Packers, Michael Lombardi wrote something interesting in The Athletic about the Packers and said – uh, you know, to paraphrase, hey, let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves and just assume that everybody thinks that this Green Bay Packers job is the best job on earth because it's the Green Bay Packers. It's great that there's no ownership presence because there's not a meddling owner. You know, like the football people get to be just football people. Right. But the organization has changed in some ways to where – there didn't used to be one guy that you would answer to, so everybody just got to kind of do their own thing, where it sounds now like it's more directed from the top down from Mark Murphy. Um, but then also just the, just the notion of luring players to Green Bay. Yes. Living in Green Bay, which most, most football coaches are holed up in an office all day anyway, but living in Green Bay and maybe your family being happy with living in Green Bay versus mm-hmm. somewhere else, it's, it's not quite so simple. And you've got perhaps a more finicky than people even realize quarterback who's getting old than Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I was I was going back, completely separate thing that I was doing today. I was going back and looking at some of the rankings of offensive lines in the NFL over the last three or four years today, just for a, just for a segment I want to do on, on the triple threat. And in that, I got to looking at who the playoff teams were each year and trying to correlate that with offensive line. And, and within that research, you realize, like, Green Bay – has been and I know Aaron Rodgers has been banged up, but for the last five years, I, like they've topped out at ten and six. Yeah, like it's been, it's been a long time. Like that, they, you have to go back all the way back. I think to 2014, when they they lost on that onside kick, or the you know the I think it was an onside kick. They fumbled in a two point conversion that Seattle got um, to go to the to go to the Super Bowl against New England. You have to go back to that season to find a season where Green Bay was like bi week relevant in the playoffs. Yeah. And and that would that would scare me a little bit because I know, like I said, I know Rodgers was banged up a couple of those years, but that should be a concern that he's been banged up. He's 35, and I do think your point about luring guys to Green Bay when there's not a marquee quarterback where you feel like, like if you're a veteran who's going to go to Green Bay, you're going to go to Green Bay because you feel you got a chance to steal a ring. Right. And and I think that's. It's a tougher sell now. Like the quarterback position is stockpiled full of young quarterbacks who are really good. 
um, and are going to be really good over certainly over the course of the rest of whatever Aaron Rodgers' career is. So I think that's a tough sell. You know, I, it'll be interesting to see who takes that job because the, the counterpoint to that is, well, if Rodgers is healthy and you have a good offseason, you know, drafting and, and signing a few guys um, – then maybe you can steal a couple deep runs in the playoff early on in your career. I just wonder if they're going to give whoever the head coach is credit or if it's going to be Aaron Rodgers. I think Mike McCarthy ran into a lot of that with Rodgers, especially over the last few years. The other interesting thing that's happened so far in this coaching search year is that a lot of notable college coaches have just flat out said, yep, I'm staying where I am. I got a good situation. Yeah. Uh, Lincoln Riley staying in Oklahoma. Just signed a new deal. Pat Fitzgerald just came out very early, and I didn't even realize Pat Fitzgerald was going to be a hot. Maybe, maybe he I wasn't. Didn't either. Maybe Pat. I'm Fitzgerald, just now hearing about maybe, this on the Deceptively you know Fast podcast. I'm just realizing it now myself, where he came <laughs> out and emphatically said, "No, I will be not interview, not be interviewing anywhere." And maybe he kind of put himself in the conversation. You should do that on Monday on well, Mad Radio. You should you should pull yourself out of the running for any head coaching job. Just kind of how Lewis Riddick did it with the GM <laughs> yes, deal. Yeah. I, you know what? I should say that. I should say I'm not uh, – look, no, I will not be accepting any – what could I What could I feasibly argue my way into, uh, like a defensive line coach? Yeah, for yeah I think for sure something. a defensive – I think you could coach D-line in a heartbeat. I'm definitely not taking it. I'm definitely not doing it. Right, 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 on any of these eight staffs. Um, so David Shaw staying put, which I, I'm getting tired of David Shaw having <laughs> – David- and, and this is my conspiracy theory about David Shaw. I think a lot of teams – I think a lot of teams – kind of backdoor their way into the Rooney rule, or at least by making themselves look as more virtuous than they are by saying, like, we'd love to have David Shaw. Yeah. Let's, hey, David Shaw's a bright young guy, and we want to – and he's not even young anymore. We want to have him here knowing full well that David Shaw wants to stay in Stanford. Yeah. Nefarious. I'm going to start keeping an eye out for any coaches or uh, any organizations that try to say, well, like, we'd really like David Shaw. Like, wait a second. Yeah. You don't actually want to interview a minority coach because yeah. you're claiming you want David Shaw. That's like saying, like, oh, I'm not going to marry Elle McPherson. Right. You can't just – right, right. You can't just feed Adam Schefter a tweet yeah. that you might be interested in somebody and have that be your 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 uh, Rooney Rule checkbox there. But, but I will say, along the lines of Pat Fitzgerald, who may or may not have actually been a candidate, uh, David Shaw, Lincoln Riley, I think I, – I wonder if more college coaches are starting to realize, for one, the money's getting really, really good in college yeah. football. But two, boy, the thought of – the chances of you staying in one place as an NFL head coach are so low, and to actually build a legacy as as that coach, yeah. um, that maybe guys are starting to realize when they got a good thing going that hey, being the coach at Oklahoma for twenty or thirty years is a pretty badass thing to do with there's, your life. There and and especially with jobs like Oklahoma compared to the NFL, there's so much more variability built into the NFL than there is in college football, right? I mean, Lincoln Riley in college it snowballs. Yeah, and, you build that recruiting strength yeah, year after year after year. Right, and and like Lincoln Riley's going to win ten games every year at yeah. Oklahoma. He's just going to because. It's less of a zero-sum game than the NFL is. You know what I mean? You can you can have the same quality roster for the most part in the NFL, except for a, a few little things, and you can be eleven and five as easily as you can be six and ten. Right. Right. Unless and, you got like one of those truly transcendent quarterbacks, that's a, it's an eight and eight league. Yeah, and if that guy takes a helmet under the chin and breaks a collarbone or, or separates a shoulder, yeah. then you're really screwed. So. I, I think, and I think the other thing, Seth, about college jobs that's different than the NFL is these guys, especially in places like Norman, Oklahoma, and Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and Lincoln, Nebraska, they are the, they are the mayors of those towns, they are the governors of those states, they have way more power at those places yeah. than they do in the NFL, and now the money at those places is comparable. Yeah. It's comparable enough to where you'd rather have full control you don't have to deal with a draft and free agency. You just go recruit, and and at some of these schools that are that good, you handpick the guys you well, want. And it does seem like the contracts are – are the marquee college contracts longer than most NFL coach contracts? They – it uh, seems like you hear a whole lot more. now, but they're not structured the same way. It's a buyout not. versus a guarantee. Yeah, yeah, and they – and I think a lot of the coaches – I think coaches are getting really good deals nowadays when yeah. it comes to these, these buyouts – fully guaranteed you know like Kevin Sumlin got fired from A&M I think he got the rest of his deal Mm -hmm. you know Um, Dana Holgerson just signed with the University of Houston is paying a head football coach four million dollars four million dollars a year like I think O'Brien was getting five million when he signed with the Texans a few years ago you know so and this is a 
group of five school. Now, granted, it's a group of five school that has the godfather running it with Tillman Fertitta, but I just think – now, let me add, before we – Bef- you know, before we get into the bets or before we get into the next next opening, what are your thoughts on Cliff Kingsbury interviewing for head coaching jobs in the NFL? I think that Cliff Kingsbury can't get away with not addressing defense in the NFL. I don't think, uh, unless he just completely blows the door off. And I know he's addressed it at times at Texas Tech. But I do think that Cliff Kingsbury spent a good chunk of time in the NFL. Yeah. So I, I think that Cliff Kingsbury probably has some interesting ideas about what he can and cannot do, what he can get away with. And look, Pat Mahomes certainly looks NFL ready. I mean, think about think about what the knock on Pat Mahomes would have been ten years ago mm-hmm. and how it would have been an impossible to incorporate a kid. You can't you can't draft a spread quarterback to where now Pat Mahomes is the likely NFL MVP in his second season. Yeah. In basically his rookie season, he was plenty prepared to play in the NFL. And I think you have to give Cliff Kingsbury some credit for that. You know, and, and Mahomes did some things in college that he couldn't get away with in the NFL. But Kingsbury, who spent time as a quarterback in New England and yeah. elsewhere and in the CFL, I think he probably has a better feel for it than people might want to give him credit. I think the concept of Cliff Kingsbury as a head coach in the NFL right now, yeah. I'm not saying it can't happen someday, right now is laughable. He wasn't a good head coach <laughs> at Texas Tech. He was 35 and 40 at Texas Tech. That said, interviewing a guy for the job and seriously considering a guy for the job are two completely different things. And I do think this. I think I think these programs like Arizona and the Jets interviewing Cliff Kingsbury is one of those things that the mere interview is a great look. It's a great look for Kingsbury, right, because he's interviewing with NFL teams. So yeah. it keeps that buzz going about him that he's got some sort of offensive savant gene. And I think it's smart of these teams to interview him too because, let's face it, a lot of these offensive concepts that are coming into the NFL come from the offense that he was a part of as a player, come from the offense that he was a part of as an offensive coordinator at both U of H and at, and at A&M, yep. and are certainly part of the things that are, that, that are part of his offense when he was at Texas Tech. So I think it just makes sense for these teams to interview him. Even if you're not going to hire him, at least talk to a guy – who's been close to what is, to me, that's like the biggest trend in the NFL, right? The other, Everybody wants yeah. the next Sean McVay. Everybody wants an offense that's, that's you know, wide open, quarterback and shotgun or empty, a lot of RPOs, things like that. And you do the classic eight-hour interview, too, where mm-hmm. you learn some things from him. Yes. You, you take some things from that as an owner or a GM who's trying to figure out what you're going to do with your team. The other thing I would say about a guy like Cliff Kingsbury, and I think the same thing happened um, to his benefit with Chip Kelly a bit, is that when you get to the NFL, even though you're an offensive-minded guy and uh, like an up-tempo, spread type of guy, in the NFL, depending on your situation, you've got a GM over you that's stockpiling the defense. You might have a hopefully a veteran defensive coordinator yeah. that can be trusted to know what to do with those defenders. And it's actually in some ways easier for Cliff Kingsbury to be an overall good head coach perhaps because, because some of those defensive – some of those defensive pressures and requirements aren't actually even being done by him. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about with Lincoln Riley and Nick Saban and guys like that. The college football head coaching job is very different than the NFL head coaching job from a standpoint of being the overall CEO of an enterprise. I still think Cliff Kingsbury's record of 35-40, and 40, that alone would give me – he just didn't win enough football games for me mm-hmm. to think that he's a, a good head coach tactically at this point. Um but I do think that guys can be more suited, much better suited, to being an NFL head coach. Like, think about it. If Cliff Kingsbury, maybe part of what failed him at Texas Tech was, yeah, he was really good at coaching up his ball plays, but maybe some of his weaknesses, in addition to maybe some strategy on game day, was being being a CEO, you know, managing the alumni base, right. managing all the day-to-day stuff. Maybe it was too much for him. Maybe he didn't hire well. That's a big thing. Did you hire well? Did you find – you know, I know he hired David Gibbs to be his defensive coordinator, and everybody thought that was a great hire. The defense still stunk. So, like you said, if you surround yourself with the right staff in the NFL, all you're doing in the NFL is coaching ball. Yeah, You're not doing all that stuff. So you can make an argument in some ways. Yeah, the NFL head coaching job is harder purely mathematically because there's only 32 teams. It's a zero-sum game. Only 16 teams win every weekend. But just purely from a workload, what's on your plate standpoint – 
maybe a guy like Kingsbury ultimately is, is better suited to something like that. I'd like to see him be around the NFL game a little bit more before someone gives him the reins to a franchise, though. So we get to these games this mm-hmm. weekend, four games. It's going to be a, This is going to be a fun wild card weekend. It will. We'll just go, I think, chronologically if I wrote these down yes. right. Colts at Texans on Saturday afternoon. I'll make it short and sweet. I've got a lot of thoughts on this game. Obviously, I'm feeling better and better about the Texans despite many of their weaknesses, particularly in pass defense. But the biggest difference for me is that I think this is a different Texans team today than it was in week 14 when they faced the Colts last time. And one of those biggest reasons is that we saw in week 17, Bill O'Brien took the training wheels off when it came to just letting Deshaun Watson run an offense that was much closer to a Clemson-style offense. They ran more designed run quarterback run plays and option plays than they had all season long, and then they ran boot, they ran rollouts, they did all these things, and he's going to get Kiki QT back. I think they're going to be better at handling the blitz that the Colts uncharacteristically did a lot of versus the Texans the last time. Um, and I just – look, the Texans defense let up 24 points, yeah. and, and the, the Colts controlled that game, but it's not like they blew the Texans defense – barn doors out so I like the Texans in this yeah I, I I ultimately I went back and forth quite a bit on it and I ultimately took the Texans and the big tiebreaker for me was just the belief in Deshaun Watson in a game like a wild card game at home I know it's his first playoff game but I, I'm I'm gonna back him I like what you said about what they did in week 17 I'm curious what you think about this by the way I like the over better in this game than I do a side oh. my best bet was over 48 I, th- I do think it's going to be I think it's going to be a high I think it's going to be a game that's played in the high 20s or maybe low 30s um, but would you – I know O'Brien kind of unveiled – he's used them sporadically before, but he – it was a Deshaun-centric offense that they ran against Jacksonville. Do you feel like he ran that because they needed to run it to win that game against Jacksonville? Would you have rather seen him maybe wait until I think the first round of the playoffs to do some of that stuff? Because theoretically you just gave the Colts a bunch of film to study. Right. I, I think it was because it was a quasi-playoff situation where they def- I agree. they wanted to have a home playoff yes. game. They really wanted to be sure that if they were going to face the Colts, it was on their home turf. So you saw what they did. And yeah, it would have been nice to spring it on the Colts. But I think like I – I think every other coach in the NFL suspected the same thing I did all season, which is O'Brien, to his credit, needed to keep Deshaun Watson healthy, so he used quarterback run game very sparingly. And for the life of me, like I, he's a better man than me because I would have lost my patience at some point. Yeah. I would have gotten desperate in a situation and said, all right, that's it. That's it. We're running the Clemson offense. Yeah. The other thing uh, to watch for in this game that's interesting is that Ryan Kelly, the center for the Colts, missed last week with a neck injury. He's going to be back. But and, and I think a lot of people that maybe don't watch the Texans all that often won't realize that, yes, Genevieve Clowney is an outside linebacker, but he rushes against centers all the time. They yeah. line him up. He might as well be a nose guard on passing downs. And I think Jadavion could really have his way with those middle three, um, and including Quentin Nelson. So I, I think there's going to be – it's going to be a rougher day for Andrew Luck than perhaps people anticipate. The Stars will need to show up for the Texans. Their yeah. four best players are Watson, Hopkins, Watt, and Clowney. Those guys are all going to need to be at least a B-plus, if not an A-minus or higher in this game. Because the Texans' pass defense has issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By the way, can you imagine if the Texans tagged Jadavion Clowney this offseason as a nose tackle? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Instead of a defensive ender and Wonder, linebacker. Based on alignment, because <laughs> that's what they'll do. They'll go and they'll base it on alignment. I, think I mean, what's the what's the average? The what's the often. average of the top five salaries of nose tackles? Like eight million bucks Look, or I, something? I think they only do interior. Defensive I think they do linemen. defensive tackles. I think you're right. Yeah. But if it's interior defensive linemen, maybe it's just defensive. Well, well Aaron Donald took that average up yeah. quite a bit this year. Um, Seahawks <laughs> at Cowboys. I'm going to do. I pulled. <laughs> Sorry, JD. You're a nose tackle. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled two. Uh, I pulled two. Sean Pendergast tricks out of my head for this one. Oh, nice. Uh, which is, I, I think I, I think I've got this right. You like to sometimes look at the photo of a head coach <laughs> yes. and then look at the photo of the other head coach. <laughs> yes. And uh, Pete Carroll, for all of his idiosyncrasies and goofiness at times, when I stack him up next to Jason Garrett, I look yeah. at those two photos and I'm like, oh, you, oh, you gum-chewing, dashing <laughs> son of a bitch conspiracy right. theorist. I'm going with Pete Carroll. Right. No, for these two, you don't do still photo. You don't do the JPEG. You do the GIF for these two. Clapping Pete- versus Gum yes, gum. exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, Pete Carroll, he's just he's he's chomping on that gum. The hair is waving in the wind. Yeah. And Jason Garrett is clapping for no apparent reason. <laughs> right, right, no. The other oh, and then the other Sean Pendergast test I would use yes. is which coach would you rather go on a long road trip with? <laughs> 
And I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, in the heartbeat, it's Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll in a second. Pete Carroll. Imagine into, the tail you'd I'll, get when I'll you get stop in, at little towns oh, along the way. Yeah, and I'll get into some argument with him about 9-11 or something. You're right. He'll he'll chat up Flo the waitress at some diner. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking Jason Garrett's musical choices would probably just be awful. <laughs> like, he's going to be Carly Simon. ABBA. America. Like, all these crap Bread. bands from the 70s and 80s. Yeah. So, I'm a, I, I can't not pick the Seahawks in this game. Uh, I like the cut of your jib. I have yeah. the Seahawks in this game. They're catching one and a half. It was up to two this morning. And gum chewing and clapping notwithstanding, there's actual data behind these two head coaches, which is the big reason I like this game. Seattle under Pete Carroll is 6-0 and straight up in opening round games of the playoffs. They're – 4-0 and in wild card round. When they've gotten buys, they're 2-0 and in the divisional round and gone on to the, the conference. I, I don't know if this is a team that's good enough to make a deep playoff run, but I do feel like this is a Seattle team, Seth, that probably uh, travels a little better than Seattle teams of the last few years because the offensive line is a little bit better. It's not yeah. great, but they've had bottom five offensive lines the last few years. It's probably a middle-of-the-pack offensive line now. Yeah. Chris Carson was the player of the month in the NFC offensively. Um, at running back, he's run the football really well, and I really Russell Wilson. I would say is for me is a top five or six quarterback in the NFL in terms of just pure game flow trust. You know that he's going to make right decisions both with his legs and with his arm. Um, that and if they're in a situation where they're behind in the fourth quarter, he can put together long drives and move the football. Especially, I believe in playoff experience, mm -hmm. and I believe in playoff track record. You know, and. Jason Garrett has much less of both of those He's things one and than two. Pete Carroll yeah. right? um, versus Pete Carroll's playoff record over the last several years. And then Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson, who you could argue the Seahawks have really done a lot of things to try to limit how much the game hinges on him, and I think that's a good thing yeah. because when it comes down to fourth quarter, when it comes down to fourth down, uh, I, I trust him in those situations. So I am going with the Seahawks. And plus, like Dallas, is that is Dallas – it's not a home field advantage there. No, but, uh, you it's know, not. Um, Chargers versus Ravens. Yeah. This is what I would say, and I was talking to Wade Smith, former Houston Texans offensive line, about this this morning. When I watched the Ravens last week in week 17, and I'm, and I'm watching the very end of the game where they just – they looked – like the scariest thing I've ever seen versus the Cleveland Browns yeah. where they, they do such a masterful job of disguising their defense as pre-snap of defensive backs, like running a four, three looking like they're going to blitz and then stopping on a dime and bailing out into coverage. They're just brilliant. And it's rare to see a defense that's, so good at disguising and also just physically punching you in the mouth. Right. Um, and, that defense versus the Chargers offensive line, who I think Phillip Rivers does a whole lot to make up for weaknesses on that offensive line, I don't think it's going to be enough this week. If you buy into – I feel I always feel like I have to caveat pro football focus because I know that it's I, – I know that it's – it's a very subjective thing, especially when it comes to things like line play. But they have a lot of good data. They they, they, yeah. they they have a lot of great data. I know the subjective stuff where it's somebody's eyes watching it and they assign a grade to it are things that I, I know, especially former players like yourself, are skeptical about. I, what I, which I always, I always include that in my analysis, yeah. right? If I'm using pro football focus. What I think pro football focus when it comes to those things, what I find it useful for is things on the margins. Okay, yeah. it validates that – these lines that I think are really good, they're all up in the top six. These ones that I think are pretty bad, they're all in the bottom six. Okay, they're seeing the same things that I – my semi-educated football I see. I was shocked. The Chargers have the 30th best offensive line, according to them. Yeah. And they're 12-4 and four this year. Right, and, and the, the, like Phillip Rivers does a great job of – working in a muddy pocket like yeah. I, I love watching him when he's in that phone booth and yeah. there's people like he's got contact on all sides it looks like he's like in a sleeping bag and he's throwing lasers but that's in a in some semblance of a pocket and I could just see him having to deal with no pocket this is just a bad matchup I think for the yeah. the charge and I like the charge I think I had him as one of my best bets at home on that Saturday night game against the Ravens a couple of weeks ago um, because I thought that the that was after Lamar Jackson's first five games as a pro, which were all against abysmal run right, defenses. Right. And I thought, okay, well, the Chargers, it's not a real home field advantage. However, the Ravens are having to go all the way across the country two days before Christmas and go against a rush defense. It's at least average. Um, I was wrong. This is a Ravens de this is a Ravens team that I think has a has a uh, like a culture and a swagger to it. They've got an identity. Um, that I don't know is going to be good enough to get through the AFC, but I think it's going to be good enough to win this game at home 
early on Sunday. I think it's a noon, maybe even 11.30 kick. It's an early kick. So you got a West Coast team going all the way across to the East playing at, you know, 9 or 10 a.m. body clock time. Um, and basically the Raven, I, the line is up to three. Oh, that's right, the body clock. Yeah, the, the line uh, the line is up to three in a lot of places. It was one and a half when I did this article. So a lot of people are thinking along the same lines. But I – I like the Ravens in this game, um, and I just I, I think they're I just think they're gonna I think they're gonna beat up the Chargers. Yeah. Is what I think is gonna happen. Eagles at Bears. The one big question for me here is I started to think about okay, Nick Foles and the Eagles, a redux of last year, but obviously with some differences. And I think the two diff- big differences would be this, in my mind. One is that the Eagles secondary is just a mess, and they face some teams that haven't necessarily been able to exploit that. I don't think the Bears are gonna be able to exploit that. Yeah. Um, but it's just it's it's a weakened defense going versus an offense that's capable of doing something. So really, where the where this is turning into in my mind is a defense versus defense question. Yeah, and it's that can Foles do versus the Bears defense what they did last year in the playoffs when the only good defense they faced in the playoffs was the Minnesota Vikings. Yeah, and and the answer to that question is like I wouldn't have known it at the time, but starting with that game and on into this season. I shouldn't have trusted that Vikings defense. Yeah. The Vikings defense just had a huge letdown in that game versus the Eagles, and then they've been a big letdown this year. I trust this current Bears defense more than I trust the 2017 Vikings defense, and I just don't think that this is – there's no more magic left for Nick Foles in this game. Not on the road. I mean, yeah. they were the number one seed in the NFC last year, so they both of those playoff games they got – they got it home. You know, they, they had to struggle against Atlanta just to get out of the divisional round last year. A lot of the gambling sharps and the experts I listen to on podcasts bring up this point is what would we think about what would this what would the handicap be on this Eagles team if if Matt Ryan makes a pass at the yeah. end of that game last year in the divisional round? Then they're just some team that got knocked out at home in the divisional round to the Falcons. And obviously they went on to do some they went on to win the Super Bowl. So you factor those things in because they won the biggest game against the greatest coach of our era and things like that. But it just illustrates how razor thin the margin is between having these grandiose thoughts about how good a team is. And just thinking that they're one of 25 other teams that can beat any other team on any given Sunday, that they're not an elite team. Um, so they they had they had the, the home field advantage last year. It was obviously really helpful to them. This is a Bears team that is on point defensively over the last 10 games, too. They're averaging giving up 15 points a game. The only games where they've given up more than 20 points in the last 10 games, a 34-22 win over the Lions where the Bears got a gigantic lead and gave up some touchdowns in the fourth quarter when they were in prevent. And then a third, their only loss – during that string, oddly enough, is to the Giants, 30-27, to 27, about four or five weeks ago maybe. And the Giants scored two touchdowns, one on a pick six and one on a trick play by Russell Shepard to yeah. Odell Beckham. So the conventional defense for the Bears has been really on point. They've averaged giving up 15 points a game in that 10-game stretch. You back those couple of games out, now you're down to around 10 points a game. So it, it's a really good defense. You know, Trubis- They don't ask Trubisky to do a whole lot offensively. Yeah. Um, and they've played well against good teams. You know, that that win against the Rams late in the season, to me, was a re- – that that was one where you go, okay, well, the Bears are – the Bears went from being treated kind of how the Texans are treated, I think, by people where they're a nice story and they're going to win double digits, but to – that made people sit up and think about the Bears as a serious contender. Well, and yet shifting narratives throughout the season, too, where midway through the year, right around Thanksgiving, when the uh, famous Rams – the, the Rams-Chiefs game that changed the nature of football in the uh, NFL. For a week. Uh, remember, defense didn't matter anymore. Right. Uh, to all of a sudden, like, oh, wow, yeah, look at all these games where defenses very much mattered against good offensive teams. Yeah, no, like a week later, 10 yeah. fewer <laughs> touchdowns were scored. No yeah. joke. You know, yeah. it was it was like, you know what I think is interesting just overall, Seth? And, and by, so, by the way, I'm picking the Bears in this one. Minus five and a half, it's up to minus six. I, I just think they're going to – I just think the home field advantage is huge here, and I, I think the uh, I think the clock runs out on the Eagles. Um, is that all eight of these teams playing this weekend are all coming in pretty hot? Yeah. Towards the end of the year, like you go back and look at where all these teams were, you know, from like the week four to week seven, or maybe even a little later. Like the Eagles were four and five at one point in the season. Um, the Bears won nine out of their last ten. The Cowboys were three and five at one point. The Seahawks were four and five at one point. The Texans were zero and three. 
The Colts were one and five. The Chargers have won, I think, nine out of their last ten. The Ravens were four and five with Joe Flacco as their quarterback. That that's what's intriguing to me about this weekend is by nature, most playoff teams are coming in playing decent football because these are the twelve best teams. Yeah. These are eight teams that are coming in and over the last course of you know, the course of the last month and a half to two months are playing outstanding football. And it, and it creates a whole lot of heightened tension and yeah. anticipation. Yes. Which is great. Yep. So I look forward to talking to you about this next week. And I'll, I'll see you tomorrow, buddy. Yes. Have a good one. Yep. So there's Sean Pendergast. We'll have Michael Lombardi here in a moment. A uh, quick update on the Hardcore History podcast that I'd been working my way through. It's about 15 to 20 hours of the Hardcore History countdown to Armageddon. No, blueprint for Armageddon. That's what it is. Um, it's his Dan Carlin synopsis of World War One. whole bunch of great stories there. I, I'm as confused as I've ever been about World War One because it's such a complex affair, but really an incredible podcast. And uh, I know several of you have reached out to me. Uh, she told me you're listening to the podcast while watching football. It's, uh, it's, it's a hell of a thing. It sucks you right in and really gives you a whole new level of respect for what people of that generation went through um, and, and had to live with afterwards, too, and how it shaped our modern world. So the Hardcore History Podcast by Dan Carlin, highly recommended, even though it might take some time away from your listening to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. I always tell you guys I care about you, and I do. I want you to enlighten yourselves and learn about this world of ours and all the things that shape it outside the world of football. So take a gander at that when you have a chance. For now, here's Michael Lombardi. And joining us now from The Ringer, from many, many decades in the NFL, where he worked with the likes of Al Davis, uh, Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, and more, Michael Lombardi, uh, also the author of Gridiron Genius, a very, very good book. I recommended that most of you buy it for Christmas. If you didn't, there's still time to absolve yourself of any of your other sins and, uh, and buy this. How are you doing, Michael Lombardi? I'm doing great, Seth. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, all that. Hope uh, you're well. Oh, thanks, man. And I'm sorry I wasn't here last week. I heard you uh, – <laughs> look, look, I heard you throw a little shade at me for taking <laughs> some time off during football season. Uh, you know, as Al Davis would say, uh, one miss, all miss. You know, you can't do that, kid. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What are you thinking about in this game where, look, the city of Houston is abuzz with – fears of T.Y. Hilton, and rightfully so. And, and like, what's your personal philosophy on just how T.Y. Hilton, through multiple coaches, players, defenses, has managed to have the Texans number so many times? Well, I think the one thing we can really write down and, and believe is the Texans can't cover T.Y. Hilton. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious, right? Mm -hmm. So he, he's going to get open. He got open. He made unbelievable plays in the, in the, in the second game. He made them in the first game. So you've got to have to double them. You're going to have to jam them at the line and have help on top and play underneath of them so he doesn't beat you. And then you're going to hope that you can hold up in the other areas. I think when you go back and look at this game, I mean, look, I, I think the last time they played in Houston, it was not Houston's finest hour. Deshaun Watson did not play well, held the ball too long, got sacked. They didn't have any rhythm to their offense. They couldn't get control of the line of scrimmage. I think the quickness of the, of the Colts' front bothered them. And I think they're going to have to solve those issues. And I think having Cote back this week certainly helps along that way. Mike, along those lines, would you at all be encouraged from a Texas standpoint that Indianapolis was clearly the better team on the field that day a few weeks ago, yet Deshaun missed arguably two touchdowns down the field, and then he let him down the field in the fourth quarter, got a touchdown. They couldn't you know, stop the third and one, but even though Indianapolis won that game and was the better team, it was still a three-point game at the end. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly, you know, I think, look, I have great respect for Deshaun, and I think the fact that he played poorly is the fact that's going to motivate him to play much better. He knows it. You don't have to even tell him. I'm sure he took the, the brunt of the loss on his shoulders with his teammates, and he knows he's got to play better. It, it, it's, a, it's a defense that requires him to be patient. It requires him to be accurate, and it requires him to play with rhythm. The longer he holds the ball, the more their pass rushers have an ability to get there. And he's got to play with rhythm and play within himself. And I think that he knows that, and I think that's the greatest thing going for the Texans right now. That Colts defense is 10th in DVOA, which is surprising because their historical DNA has always been that of, okay, well, if they get a lead on you, they're going to be able to rush after you, but they can typically be sort of bullied. And it feels like that's a little bit different this way. Do you feel the same way? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a completely different scheme. I mean, look, they're playing a, a, similar to what they did when back in the heydays when they were good with Freeney and all that. They don't have the dominant rushers, but they play hard and they play fast and they create some negative plays. And if, if my law firm of Lamb and Davenport get into holding calls or false starts, this presents a problem for the Texans because they get behind the down and distance. You can't get behind the down and distance when you're playing the Texans, when you're playing the Colts. You've got to stay ahead of the count. You can't have negative plays. And I think that that's really going to be important, that those two tackles for the Texans don't make false starts, don't get holding calls, and really keeps the down and distance moving. You've got to take positive gains. You've got to take the profits. That, to me, has got to be Bill O'Brien's main speech for the week. Take the profits. You know, Michael, it became very evident early in the season that when the Texans were running read option, they weren't actually running the read option. They were just doing his window dressing, and it was going to be a handoff no matter what. Um, and, and the theory that started making the rounds was that Bill O'Brien had to be careful with Deshaun Watson's health, given his ribs and whatnot, and coming off of an ACL. And that maybe come playoff time, that's when you'd start to see the designed quarterback runs. And then in Week 17, Deshaun Watson ran – a third of all of his designed runs this season came in week 17. And yeah. I'm just, I'm wondering, I'm really impressed if that was the predetermined strategy of Bill O'Brien to have the discipline to be able to do that. Is it, is it possible that it was discipline, extreme discipline the entire time? Or was it that Deshaun was that banged up and it was just out of sheer necessity? Well, there's a great saying that fear does the work of reason, right? So if you're fearful, you're not going to get to where you need to go. It's easy to reason with you. And I think that that's the key. And look, as Belichick often tells his team, there's nothing. To, there's no, we're not saving anything back now. It's do or die now. We've got to put it all out there. And last week, 17, to win the division, they had to put it all out there. And I think that's what's going to happen here. I think this is where the Texans are going to find out the value of having a great player like Deshaun Watson. I think Deshaun Watson is – these are the games that he plays well in. He did at Clemson. He did in high school. And I think he's going to continue to do that for the Texans. I have faith in Deshaun to play much better and to demonstrate that he's a marquee player in this kind of, this kind of setting. Where would you rank the Texans among all the teams playing this weekend? Look, they are, you know all the teams playing – I did a, a thing for the uh, – of the athletic, I did, I did a column for the athletic. I compared them all to characters from The Godfather, Sopranos, and, and The Wire. And I think that, you know, that everybody has a little bit of a deficiencies in their play. I mean, the Texans, if they get tired in the fourth quarter in their defensive front, you can throw the ball on their secondary. Everybody knows that. Their offensive line is a liability. And if Watson doesn't throw the ball in rhythm and get it about there, that's going to be a problem. So. I think there's, this is the year where 12 teams made it, and all 12 teams could easily be hosting the trophy. I don't say that because there's parity. I just say that it's the matchup week and how you handle the matchups. I think the Texans have to stay fresh. they got to get this game in the fourth quarter, but Watt's got to be 100% fresh in the fourth quarter. Clowney's got to be fresh in the fourth quarter. If they're tired in the fourth, the Colts will move the ball and score two touchdowns. Mike, who do the Patriots want to see next week? Who are they rooting for? I don't think they're rooting for anybody. I think the Patriots are in one of those situations where they're just not playing. You know, they have to play well in themselves. I'm not sure that they are, and I think they have to root for themselves more than anything. I think really everything about New England is all about how they play, not about who they play. And I think they've got to improve their passing game. They've got to throw the ball much better, and they can't win with just a run game. They've been remarkable. They've had three games this year where they only scored 10 points. So they know they've got some they got some deficiencies in their game, but they're going to have to play. I think anybody's going to be a tough matchup. I think Houston going up there would be a tough matchup. I think the Colts would be a tough matchup. They beat both teams once. They beat them both on their home field. I think it would be hard to beat them again. I love the way that you tie in football with with pop culture and with the wire especially which is a very underrated show so the the texans to you were were, were stringer bell do you care to elaborate on that i was fascinated by that comparison well i mean stringer bell if anybody watched the wire is a really smart articulate guy who wants to be something that he's not he wants to take his business from the street and make it more of a corporate business and he's hanging out with corporate people he looks pretty he's well dressed he, he takes classes he's the anti-street drug guy and what happens to him is he gets too far caught up away from where he really needed to be, which was his roots. And I think that's what the Texans have to always understand. They've got to understand who they are and what they're able to bring to the table, and they can't get too far away from it. How many points, Mike, the Texans need to score on Saturday to feel that they will win this game? I think that, you know, I think the scoreboard's irrelevant here. I think they've got to keep scoring because the, the, the Colts can keep scoring with you now. 
So I think to get control of the game, I think this is more about who has the ball 35 minutes and who has a 25 on offense. I think that's going to be the key. Pacing in the in, in, in playoff games are vital, and you've got to be able to pace the game. And I think it's going to come down to third down. Look, the Colts are one of the best third down teams in football on offense. I don't know how they do it. I don't know where Frank Frank Wright's magic is on third down. It happened last year in Philadelphia. It's happening in Indianapolis. It's remarkable. It's truly remarkable how they're always in the right play at the right time on third down. I think this game's going to come down to third down in the red zone, third down in the field, and I think the Texans have to control the ball and keep Andrew Luck on the bench. Andrew Luck in the playoffs has been much less magnificent than his regular season self. Nine touchdowns, 12 interceptions, 56.5% completion percentage. Is, is some of that just dumb luck and small sample size, or is there substance to that? Well, I think he's playing against better teams, right? So, And he's playing against better defensive fronts. He's trying to force the ball, and they can't play the pace that they want to play. Typically, those old Andrew Luck teams needed to play from ahead. You know, and they get behind, and he's going to force the ball. We saw it last week, you know, against the Titans. He'll try to force the ball into some areas where he is prone to make a mistake. But like a great center fielder who gets to a lot of balls and has errors, you know, Luck's going to make enough plays to beat you. You, you can't let this game, even if the Texans get up 20-7 to 7 at halftime, the game ain't over. It's all about really starting every quarter is a new quarter. you got to start. you got to keep banging away. That's the only way to play against a great quarterback. Mike, possibly ignorant question I raised with these guys earlier this week. So I, I have nothing for or against Josh McDaniels, who obviously, you know, reneged on the offer to be the coach, the coach of the Colts. I was under the impression after that whole thing went down that Josh is going to be the next coach of the Patriots if and when Belichick steps away. And why is there so much interest in McDaniels right now? Because to me, the only thing I'd, if I was an NFL team, the only thing I'd ask McDaniels right now in an interview is what the hell happened with Indianapolis last year? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a great point, and I'm not sure anybody can really answer that other than Josh, but this is what I do know. It goes back to my book. It goes back to what Bill Walsh said. Very few people can draft a quarterback, evaluate a quarterback, and even fewer can coach him. And Josh can coach a quarterback, and that puts him in demand every single year. He can run an offense. It's very good. It's it's well-designed. It's creative. And that alone is why he's gone to – he's in a field against people that aren't at his level from a chess standpoint. I mean, he is truly a great chess player. And whenever you find a great chess play, people are going to keep going after him. Uh, Antonio Brown in the news for a lot of the wrong reasons over this last week. And, Michael, if you look at the Pittsburgh Steelers, really since their last Super Bowl when Antonio Brown was a rookie – it feels like a squandered opportunity because Antonio Brown didn't really play a role in that Super Bowl. And then you've had these years with Ross Roethlisberger, Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, and all these other studs, and they they didn't they didn't achieve anything ultimately. How much of this is on Mike Tomlin, and how much of it is on the scouting and personnel staff? Where I look at a lot of these guys, and they just don't seem like the Steelers that I grew up playing against. Like they don't seem like these blue collar lunch pail guys, like James Harrison or or Heinz Ward or some of these guys. No, I think look, it, it goes back to an old saying: you're either coaching it or allowing it to happen. And clearly, they've allowed it to happen, and that falls on Mike Tomlin. And he's got to get control of it, and he's got to be able to make his team more disciplined. Like I've said on this show many times, the secret to all victory lies in the organization of the non-obvious. And they're not organized on the non-obvious. They're a a cluster. And until they get that handled, they're going to keep having these games in Denver or in Oakland where they stub their toe and wonder what the hell happened. And I think it falls on Mike. I think Mike's a really good coach, but he has to stop being a player's coach. Remember the summer when Danny Amendola came out and said how much fun he was having playing in Miami and how he's enjoying it all down there? How's that working out for him down there? Look, the NFL is a paramilitary organization. You've got to run it from top to bottom, and you've got to, be, you've got to do it every single day. And if you don't, you're going to fall short, and you're going to be fired like Adam Gase. Michael, where are you going to be spending the weekend? I'm going to be doing my VEASAN Betting Across America show over in Atlantic City, and I'm, my sons are in town, uh, both coaches, one who just had a great win down at Baylor, beating Vanderbilt, put more points on Vanderbilt than any team in the Southeast Conference did all season, so I'm proud of my Baylor Bears, and uh, I'm going to watch the game with them. We've, uh, we've had a chance to talk to Matt Rule a couple times. We like him. Matt Rule's a great coach. Matt Rule's a great coach. Matt Rule gets it, and I think Matt Rule understands what it takes to win, and I think he'll be an NFL coach soon. Michael, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.